Great. Uh, as Simon said, we're just over halfway through uh, our series looking at the whole story of the Bible, one book, one story. And in this whole series, we're seeing more and learning more about who God is. Because the Bible is ultimately not a book about you and me. It's a book about God. It's a book about God and who he is and what his relationship is with us. And it's, a, it's amazing that we can even say that, that God wants a relationship with us. Um, last week, if you were here, um, you can catch up with all of them online if you're not. Then we saw about the law, uh, the law which was given to show his people, to show us how to live in relationship with God. The people came out of Exodus, uh, came out of Egypt, sorry, in Exodus a few weeks ago, and they were given the law um, through Moses and the Ten Commandments. But now we see that God is not just going to give them the law and let them be. He wants to live amongst them. He, he's not a king who sets the law and sits in his own distant castle and lets people crack on. No, uh, our God wants to live amongst his people. And so at the end of Exodus, if you were to flick through, and I encourage you to read it, we get chapters and chapters and chapters and chapters describing the, the dwelling place of God, um, what's often called the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. And this is where God's presence would dwell um, as the people moved closer and closer and closer towards the promised land. Um, the land promised to Abraham, which we looked at a few weeks ago. So this is where we are now in our story. We're, we're learning what does it look like for God to live amongst his people. And the tabernacle, uh, here it is. Here's a representation of uh, what they've taken from the Bible, of what it may have looked like. It, it consists of a courtyard, as you can see there, and a tent inside of that. And the tent was then separated into two sections. You had the holy place and the most holy place. Creative naming, the holy of holies potentially. Um, and we see it there. We've got the diagram there. You've got the holy place and the most holy place. And there are a number of symbolic items within the holy place. We could have sermons on all of them, but we won't. We get reminded of God's provision uh, through bread, the table there, the table of bread. Uh, we get reminded of God's constant watch over his people with a lampstand. Then we have the veil, a curtain which screens the entrance to the most holy place. And in the Holy of Holies was one thing, the Ark, Ark of the Covenant. If you watch Indiana Jones, you know all about it. Uh, it's an ornate table. It spoke of God's presence amongst his people. And inside that was the Ten Commandments. And above it, there was a lid, the separate lid called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And at either end of that are figures of angels, cherubims as they're called. And God said to Moses, there above the cover, between the two cherubim, over the ark, I will meet you. And this is amazing. We need to be struck by this as we read it. We may have heard this all, but struck by it. God is back living amongst his people. He's living amongst his people. The, the, the holy God, remember the God from last week? On the mountain, fire, um, we can't go near his presence. There's a fence around the mountain, but God is now back amongst his people. But hopefully, maybe you're sitting there going, this creates a real problem. Because how on earth can a holy God live amongst a sinful and impure people? How is it possible? How can the, the king of all the cosmos live amongst humans? How can the one who created everything live amongst people who, who again and again rebel against him? We saw that, didn't we? How Right from the beginning, they were given the law, and within moments, they were breaking the law. The Israelites could not stop breaking the law, and so deserve God's judgment. A holy God cannot live amongst an unholy people. 
God cannot tolerate evil. He can't tolerate rebellion against him. It's, if he did, he wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be completely good. He wouldn't be completely just and completely holy. He is set apart. Um, I was just speaking to Helen beforehand. It's one of those annoying ones where you go, oh, what are you going to do in junior church? And she's got this brilliant illustration, which I tried to find last night. I couldn't find it. Oil and water do not mix. It's just a little helpful picture that, that, that a sinful people and a holy God cannot mix. She had something about ketchup as well. If you put ketchup in, it can mix with the blood of Jesus. It sounded, you'll find it online. But, but the point is, God cannot live amongst an unholy people. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He must punish sin. It would be like a judge who would turn a blind eye to whatever crime was presented before him. He's standing in the courtroom, the cr criminal comes in, evidence all goes in that favor, and he just goes, oh, I don't care, do what you want. He wouldn't be a judge, would he? He'd be stripped of his title of being a judge. God cannot ignore sin. And I don't think when I was wrestling with this this week, it's not a problem I think we really understand because of two reasons. Or at least these are for me. I don't think we view God correctly very often. And I don't think we view our sin as it really is. We view sin as so very little. We get God wrong and we get sin wrong. You see, the command in the Bible is to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. One sin, one act of rebellion, one break of the law is all it takes. It's a high bar. It's not like Islam. Islam grades on a curve. When you read the Quran, where on the final day your good deeds will be totted up and your bad will be totted up. And if you come out generally good, then uh, you might be okay. That's not how it works. No, when we, when we sin, the Bible is clear that all of us do. All of us, and it's not just doing wrong things sin, but it's in our very nature. We all rebel from living with God as our king. We saw that back in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and 3. When we sin, we're rebelling against the king of the cosmos. We're violating the rule of the king of the universe. And sin is not even necessarily just always intentional. We see that in Leviticus 4, which you can read. But we're so used to sinning. We're so accustomed to it. that I think we rarely grasp the reality of it. I know I don't. I, I rarely grasp the gravity involved in defying God. We think that at the end of time, we're just going to be able to stand before God and even ask him for things. And it's a great lie from the devil from Genesis 3 that sin does not matter. Remember Eve in the garden, what the devil says to her? Go on, you will not surely die. You can do this. You will not surely die when you rebel against God. It's rubbish. It's a lie. Sin equals death. I wonder if you noticed at the start of our passage, you Sometimes take a while to get into the reading of the passage and read it, or sometimes I just glaze over the right at the start here. Verse 1 and 2, look down with me. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, tell your brother Aaron that he is not to come whenever he chooses into the most holy place, behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover, on the ark, or else he will die. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. Aaron had two sons who died. Aaron, the high priest here, two sons who died. And I wonder if it's uncomfortable for you that God killed them. Leviticus 10, you can read it later, Nadab and Abihu. This is what it says at the start of Leviticus 10. Aaron's son, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, the sort of bowls of sorts, we think, put fire in them and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. 
So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They dared to enter the presence of God uninvited, and they were killed. Uh, maybe, maybe you read that, and maybe you go, that sounds a bit much. <laughs> or that doesn't sound like God to me. Or maybe you go, that doesn't sound like the God I worship. God wants to dwell amongst his people, but there must be an appropriate level of mediation. God is good, but he's not safe. He cannot tolerate sin rightly. Their death was just and their death was right. That was them. But let's not divorce this from us. We've we've seen it. We've seen it throughout this series and we see it again and again. We ourselves are rebels against God in our hearts. It's not only those involved in awful atrocities and you just flick on the news and there's awful atrocities, aren't there, again and again. Think of the the 39 migrants in that lorry. Horrendously tragic. And the people who perpetrated that deserve punishment, rightly. But we all deserve punishment because we all sin. Uh, The question comes, do do you hate your sin? Do I hate my sin? It's easy, isn't it, to see big picture sin and hate that. It's easy to hate the sin that causes pain as well, the sin that maybe hurts someone. We all want to be rid of our own anger because if if we don't get rid of our anger, then it would be the detriment of our family, wouldn't it? We want to be rid of laziness, maybe, for the sake of godly productivity. We want to be rid of gluttony, maybe, because we, for the sake of our waistline. But what about the sin that fails to trouble us? What sin fails to trouble you? What about the sin whose patterns have just become so convenient to you? Whose outcomes have become so comforting? You come back to it again and again. What about the pleasures we find in our lust and in our greed? God hates sin. We've seen it here at the start in chapter, uh, verses one and two. He, He hates sin and so should you and so should I. Uh, and I hammer the point, and I'm aware I'm hammering the point, and I had Noah as well a few weeks ago, which is pretty bleak on sin and judgment. But we hammer the point because we forget it so often. I forget this so often, and I don't get the gravity and the significance of my sin. And if I don't get the gravity and significance of my sin, I will not get the awesome power and good news of the gospel. Like the sons of Aaron, we all deserve death. I go, if you're anything like me, you go like this. I go, yeah, sure, but <laughs> I'm all right, really. Uh, of course, I mess up. I, I say things I shouldn't. I'm incredibly selfish. Just ask my wife. It was a glorious incident on Friday. I'm incredibly selfish. Uh, I'm rude. I, I sin, but I'm not that bad. I'm not like them. And them is basically whoever you think is worse than you, which if you're anything like me in your head is most people. Uh, That's what our hearts do, don't they? That's how we treat our sin. But our sin is lethal. See Nadab and Abihu, it's lethal. We can't remove it. We try and ignore it, but it's there. And if we don't start here, if we don't start in this position each and every day, waking up and going, Lord, I deserve nothing. Lord, I'm not worthy to stand before you. Then the impact and the power of the gospel will be lost on us. 
We need to view our sin correctly on one hand, and we need to view God as he really is. God cannot just be defined by certain terms. God is love. Yes. Amen. But God is also holy, and he's also righteous, and he's also just. He's not just love, or, or to be clearer, his love is also displayed in how he is holy. We can't separate these things. So how we approach him matters. It really matters. Um, I grew up throughout my time at school with my dad as my headmaster, which some of you may go, that was a bit tricky. And it was at times, a little bit. But generally, I loved it. He was well-respected in the school, which helped. Uh, he never caught me doing anything too naughty, which was good. Um, didn't catch me. There was stuff, but he didn't catch me. Um, he was my dad, but he was also my headmaster. And I needed to be aware of that. There was a, a time, I think I was about 13, he'd recently become headmaster. And about five o'clock in the evening, school's finished. Uh, and I just bounded into his office. He used to have loads of sweets in his office. And I bounded. I wanted a sweet. Uh, and I bounded in as if I was just bounding into a lounge at home. And I stumbled into a very serious disciplinary meeting and quickly knew I should not be there. The look I got was firm. And rightly then, when I got home, I was told very firmly by my dad that when I was at school, I was to approach his office with a lot more respect and proper protocol. Yes, I'm your father, but I'm also your headmaster. I'm not saying God's a headmaster, but what I am saying is we cannot just approach God as we are in our sinfulness or we will die. God is not too kind to punish the ungodly. God is described as like a consuming fire. We saw that a bit last week. We see that with the, the tents and the guards and the, um, the area around us and the separation. God is, God is not safe as we've seen. We need to know that and believe that and meditate on that. He's not like Santa. It's a lie. Satan would have whispered in Aaron's son's ears. He would have gone, Guys, of course you can approach. God's your best friend. He's your buddy. Do what you want. Your sin, it's not an issue here, guys. Oh, guys, remember what family you're from. You're Moses' nephews. You've been to church your whole life. You give to the church even. You go pretty regularly. You read your Bible quite a lot. You've done it quite a lot this week. You can go into his presence whenever you want. Do whatever you want. Can I maybe encourage you tomorrow as you go about your work to ponder this aspect of God? It's not a nice aspect necessarily. His rightful anger at our sin. But as we've said, if we don't get this bit right, then the good news will not be good news. It will just be news which doesn't really affect us. There's no way we can form any form of authentic faith unless we first see ourselves as an unholy people seeking to live amongst a holy God and recognizing it cannot be done. And hopefully you're sitting there going, but Johnny, it can, and we'll get there. But we need to start at this point here. Hence why we get the protocols and the tabernacle and the different layers, and literally the whole book of Leviticus is all about this. We're sinners, so how on earth can we live amongst a holy God? And that's why we get the book of Leviticus, because the solution for the Israelites was the sacrificial system. It's what the whole book's about, Loads of sacrifices daily, weekly, annually. I encourage you to read the book. It is a slog at times, but, it, but it's a glorious picture of who God is. And it's a glorious picture of how he set it up amongst the Israelites. 
how they're meant to live amongst him. Because sacrifice addressed God's righteous anger. God's justice means a death must occur. Hebrews 9, we're going to look at Hebrews a bit later, which talks a lot about how Jesus has changed slightly, but it, or fulfilled it even. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. And so they had this complex system of sacrifices. And the Levites, one of the tribes of Israel, were those set apart as priests to administer these. That's why the book's called Leviticus. It's not a very inventive name for the book, but that's what it is. And so right at the center of the book, we get two chapters all about this one day. One single day, the Day of Atonement. They're put in the middle to draw our attention to them, which is why we're looking at them in our series. For Christians, our two biggest times a year, probably Easter, Christmas, roughly around that. For, For Jews, it would now be Passover and the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, as it's mainly known today. This day was the climax of the whole sacrificial system in the middle of the book to highlight it. Now, you may have read it and gone, this seems a bit weird, and we'll, we'll look into it. But, but get this first. The Day of Atonement was a bit like a family taking out a family gym membership. Go with me here. Jenny, you look confused. Go with me here. It's a bit like the family taking out a family gym membership. Throughout the year, if you've got a family gym membership, the whole family can go to the gym. At different times, of course, they go to the jacuzzi, they can use an exercise bike. And to do that, they only need to pay 50p each time they want to go in. Wonderful deal. Because they get in on the basis of their annual subscription. And the annual subscription is the Day of Atonement. The daily sacrifices of a 50p. So that's how the system worked. It was the day, the most important day. It was known by the Israelites as the day. The basis on which all the other sacrifices work. Uh, Atonement just means to cover, the covering up of sin. And there are three main elements which we'll dive into. Three main elements, the priest, the scapegoat, and the blood. Firstly, the priest. Now, I want you to imagine you're in the Israelite camp on this day. So you've you've seen the the drawing of the, uh, or the picture even, of the potential, what the tabernacle looked like. So imagine you're in the camp. What a day. It's a bank holiday, so you're thrilled already. But it's not necessarily a day of just going and doing what you want. It would be a day of excitement. It would be a day of fear, potentially, of trepidation. Is it going to work? Because it's quite an important day. How do I live amongst a, amongst a God who is so holy? Uh, and you'd look out and you'd see around the tabernacle the high priest. And he'd be dressed not in amazing garments. He'd be dressed as a servant. See the specific instructions with me. Verses three to five. This is how Aaron, who's the first high priest, is to enter the most holy place. He must first bring a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He's to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on a linen turban. These are sacred garments. So he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. You'd see him enter the holy place. And you'd see him do that after all that preparation had gone. And he can't just wander in. Remember Nahab and Abihu. He can't just wander in. There's all this element of prep. And you'd see him go in, and if you're in this camp, you'd, you'd maybe hold your breath. Is he going to come out alive? Once a year, he goes into the most holy place. Has, has, has he done this correctly? Is he going to come out? He'd go on these two goats, having already offered a sacrifice of a goat for his own sin. And he would go in and he'd do exactly as instructed this priest, exactly as instructed 
to provide atonement, a covering of sin for his people. And if he came out alive, you let out a sigh of relief because it meant it had worked. (laughs) This one man, this priest was representing you before God. That's the priest. Then we have the scapegoat. And you would have seen that then. We get these, these rituals with the two goats. Aaron has already killed one goat for his own sin offering. Now he casts lots to choose which of uh, another two goats will live and which will die. One is slaughtered as a, as a sin offering for the people and one is the scapegoat. Your Bible, if it's different to these ones, may have called it as a zale. It just means goat depart. Uh, and it's scapegoat as we would translate it now. And in verse 20, we get this drama to read down with me. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. So we've got the live goat here. And he's to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites. So the high priest, he's laying his hands on this live goat, all their sins, and he put them on the goat's heads. Then he's going to send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. And the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place, and the man shall release it in the wilderness. You see, we've got, we've got two goats. One goat which has been killed. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the other goat has the sins of the people laid on it and is sent away to a far and a wilderness where it's not going to come back. So once again, with this goat, we have a single figure taking the place of many. He takes all the sins on him. It's a powerful illustration for the people. It's a powerful illustration for us. The sins of all the people are taken far away. Psalm 103, I think Lang's quoted last week, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our sin from us. Look down at verse 21 22 with me again. Uh, I'm going to emphasize a few words which come again and again. He's to lay both hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all of their sins. And verse 22, the goat will carry himself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. In total, I think we see the word all used seven or eight times. All the sins are carried away. It's glorious. The, the goat with these sins is never to be seen again. It's not going to wander back. Goats are pretty thick. It's not going to wander back into camp. It's gone. The sins have gone. That's for scapegoat. Then we get the third aspect, which is the blood. Verse 14, we see, it says this, he's to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover and then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. The the blood is sprinkled onto the atonement cover after the goat is killed. It's about 14 times it's done in all. Uh, The mass is quite confusing. It's not my strong point, but there's a lot of blood and it's spread on the atonement cover. And you may be asking, why on earth did it need to be so bloody? It's pretty bloody. I lived in Egypt for a time. I was once invited to go to a friend's house around what they called Eid al-Adha, which is when every Muslim family would perform an animal sacrifice. It's horrible, like absolutely horrible. There's blood everywhere. The animals are moaning. It's brutal. It's horrible. Sacrifice is horrible. Why does God need it to be so bloody? Uh, Flick with me if you've got your Bibles to just your next page. Chapter 17, verse 11. And we see here, it says, For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. 
the life is in the blood. One death is there to take the place of another. Misophema dominates the Bible. Uh, we see how there's a need for blood to be shed. There's a need for death to occur and blood represented life and the shedding of blood represented death. In some ways, it's, it makes a lot of sense. And instead of people taking the death of the sins they deserve, God appointed another, this goat, to take the death in their place. A substitute death has taken place. And it's an amazing illustration and picture for the people of Israel. And so at this point in the day, there would be great rejoicing. As the high priest stepped out of the holy hoods, he stepped out of the there would be great rejoicing. The goat has gone. The other one is dead. Sin has been dealt with. God can now continue to dwell amongst his people. And you would celebrate with your friends and your neighbors in the camp and thank God for his goodness. Because the only way to live with a holy God is by trusting in his perfect sacrifice. That's our key point today. So what we want to get at what God's teaching us in the story, the only way to live with a holy God is by trusting in his perfect sacrifice. Atonement can also be read as at one meant, at one. That which was separated, God and man, are now at one, united again. And this is amazing. Let this strike us. Remember back to the, the, the sons of Aaron? Remember back to the, the punishment we deserve for our sin? But God is now at one because of his sacrifice which has been made. But turn with me to verse 34 of chapter 16. So it's just on the next page, 120. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. Once a year? <laughs> it didn't last. It had an expiry date on it. One priest, once a year, fraught with great danger. And then the whole book has lists of daily sacrifices, which has to go on as well. Uh, and you're probably sitting here now riddled with questions, ones you may have right now. What about tomorrow when I sin again? As in the next 364 days, what goes on then? How can a goat be a fair equivalent for a person? What about for a whole nation? He laid hands and laid all the sins of a nation on a goat. How can a sacrifice really deal with the ultimate problem of a person's heart? You see, the Day of Atonement it happened year on year on year on year. It's not going to last forever. It is a shadow of what is to come. The book of Hebrews is wonderful and it helps us understand that as Jesus came, he came and perfected and made right these questions. The Day of Atonement has some great pictures, but as I've said, it's just a shadow of the reality to come. The sacrifices in the Old Testament point to a, a much greater sacrifice to come that would cover the debt finally and fully. Jesus' death on the cross. Hopefully you got there way before I've said it there, that this is what this is pointing towards. Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' sacrifice in our place on the cross, his shedding of blood. Tell me, we're going to spend our final bit in Hebrews 7. So go to page 1205 if you've got your Bibles with you, 1205. 1206 even, 1206. Hebrews 7 verses 23. And let me read for you what it says here about Jesus. Hebrews 7, verses 23, and onwards for a bit. Now, there have been many of those priests, he's talking about the high priest, since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. 
Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sin, is exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pause and marvel a little bit at Jesus here. Jesus' death means we have a perfect priest. Remember the priest? We go in the blood. We have a perfect priest mediating for us. It says here Jesus is a permanent priesthood. He doesn't die. And he's the perfect priest. Aaron, remember, he had to offer um, sacrifice for his own sin before making atonement. Jesus, it said, is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sin, is exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. That's Jesus. His death means we have a perfect priest mediating for us. Secondly, his death means there's no repeat sacrifice needed. You see it there? He sacrificed their sins once for all when he offered himself. It doesn't need to happen year on year anymore. And Jesus' death means forgiveness is total and it's complete. Remember all the alls we saw, all of the sins were placed on them, all of the sins of the people, all our sin has been removed, all of it has been cleansed by his blood. Flick with me to, oh, it's on the same page, 12 verse 7, Hebrews 9, verses 24. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's marvel with God at this. He's all these things wrapped up into one. As we've seen, a sin against God deserves death as its punishment. We've seen that. It's the only right and just punishment. So the only way by which God could fulfill his sentence, yet still be able to forgive guilty people like you and like me, was Jesus, his son, coming into the world and offering his life as a sacrifice instead of us. He is the substitute. He's the, he is the goat whose blood was shed, as well as the goat who was sent away. He is the substitute. In Thailand in the Second World War, um, there's a story told, a true story, of an incident among the Scottish soldiers. They were prisoners of war under the Japanese and they were building a railway. Uh, and the Japanese had captured them as prisoners of war. And, and one day they were building this railway and equipment uh, count was done. A shovel was found to be missing. And the Japanese officer in charge was furious. Uh, they were known as being pretty brutal, pretty ruthless. And he demanded that the shovel was produced or else. And everyone knew exactly what the all else meant. Nobody in the Scottish squadron moved. No one said a word. The officer then showed us what the all else meant. He got his gun and he threatened to kill them all on the spot. 
There are thousands of prisoners of war. It's about a dozen men here. What's a dozen men? The officer meant 100% what he said. The missing shovel, you're going to die if nobody owns up to nicking it. And slowly, one man stepped forward. And he just nodded to the guard, a little nod to the guard, signaling it was him. It's a true story. The guard instantly picked up a spare shovel and beat the man to death in front of his friends. When it was over, the survivors picked up the bloody corpse and carried it with them back to where they were, where they did a second tool check. And it was found that no shovel was missing. There had just been a miscount. The word spread like wildfire. One innocent man had been willing to die to save others. One innocent man had been willing to die to save others. The goat was innocent. Jesus was innocent. Unlike the goat, Jesus deliberately died. God himself deliberately decided to come down to earth and take God's wrathful punishment on the cross and die as a substitute. This is truth, friends. We hear this again and again and again. I hear this again and again. And let the gospel truth just hit us. See how Jesus is the priest, the lamb, and the blood all rolled into one. He mediates between us and God like the priest. Like the goat that was killed, so was Jesus killed. His blood flowed so that it might cover our sin. And like the scapegoat, Jesus is sent into the wilderness of death. He bore all our sins so that the guilty, you and me, may go free. The only way to live with the holy God is by trusting in his perfect sacrifice. And this is the awesome news of the gospel. And if you don't follow Jesus today, you're so welcome. This is, this is the gospel, the good news we talk at its essence. Jesus dying in the place of sinful man so we can live with the holy God. If that's you today and you've understood it for the first time, I implore you to trust in him. And Christian here today, if you've been following Jesus for a while, let's not move on from this. This is the, the basics, the core of the gospel. Sinful you and me saved by the innocent sacrifice of a loving God. Let's marvel at that and praise God for that. Finally, as we close then, what's, what's the result? What difference does this make to us now? Thousands of years, I'm not going to do the math, thousands of years later. I think there's three specific implications. Now we can approach God boldly all of the time. This is what it says in Hebrews 10. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. The result is total confidence in approaching God. Now, remember the, the, all the rigmarole around Aaron? Remember the, the washing he had to do and the clothes he had to do and the faff and the fact his sons had died when they didn't approach him properly? If we have trusted in Jesus, we can now approach God confidently and boldly. When Jesus died on the cross, you may know from the story, something amazing happened a few miles away in the temple. The temple became a more permanent tabernacle in Jerusalem. And separating the Holy of Holies was that, that veil we saw, that curtain, and it was huge and it was thick. And when Jesus died, it was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top, top to bottom. It could only have happened by God. And it symbolized that access to God is now available to all. Access is now available to all. Do we take that for granted? I can come into the presence of God and not die. 
What one man in one nation cannot do without the whole rigmarole once a year, I can do now. What an awesome privilege that is. It, it means we can pray, we can come into God's presence. It means that if you accept Jesus, if you trust in him as well, this is more radical even. He promises by his spirit to live in you. Live in us. I'm a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner and Jesus lives in me. God lives in me. That is phenomenal when we remember the sons of Aaron. Because of the death of Jesus, because of what he's done, we can approach God boldly and confidently. Not confident here in anything we've done, but confident in what he's done and what he's achieved. Maybe challenge yourself this week to stop for 30 seconds before you get out of bed and just thank God for that. That you can literally speak to him because of what he's done. Maybe that's something for you to take away, but maybe, maybe more like me, the challenge right back from the start is, is maybe you don't think your sin is that serious. And if you don't think your sin is very serious, you won't be affected by the death of Christ. So maybe the takeaway for you here could be that God is nudging you on. If you, if you don't take your sin very seriously, you don't think you're that bad. You inherently think you're good. Let God nudge you and convict you if that's you here today. My prayer this week is in that God would make me more aware of the seriousness of my sin. And so in turn, more aware of the gloriousness of what he's done. Maybe that's a prayer for you to pray this week. It's our first implication. Second implication, guilt has no grip on you. All our sins have been dealt with by Jesus if you trust in him. The lamb who takes away all the sins of the world has come and all means all. Think about your darkest secret. Think about your, your biggest sin. It may have been hidden for ages. It may be something which you go, there is no way I could be forgiven for that. If you trust in Christ, it's been dealt with. Jesus does what both goats do. He dies in our place, but he also removes the guilt as he's cast out into the wilderness. Our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west. So don't wallow in your sin. Don't keep trying to do anything yourself to make yourself right with God. Only the blood of Jesus can wash away our sin. We're going to sing a little bit about that in a minute. Not you trying harder, not you reading your Bible more, not having a great prayer life or serving on some rotors, nothing but the blood of Jesus. It's pathetic when we try and do it for ourselves. If you're like me, you do it all the time. God, I've had a good week this week. I can now come before you confidently. Trust in the blood of Jesus. Don't let yourself wallow in guilt. Remember what Jesus has done and bask in it. Marvel at it and thank him for it. Finally, linked with that then, we live in response with joy, assurance, and sincere thankfulness. Hebrews 10 verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. The only way to live with the holy God is by trusting his perfect sacrifice. And it's available to all. It's available to everyone. It's available to any of our mates. The day of atonement reminds us of a great equality in the world. All of us need saving. All of us are sinful. All of us can be saved if we trust in Jesus, even the person who you've written off. So don't give up. How can we live with the Holy God? By trusting the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And our response is to be a joyful yes.
It's meant to be a joyful yes, but it's also, there's a seriousness to this here. If we go back to Leviticus 16, I'll read it for you. So you can flip back if you want, but I'll read it. This is the end of Leviticus 16 and what they, how the people are to respond on this day. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work because on this day, atonement will be made for you. Two things they're to do, they're to deny themselves and rest. This is the proper behavior as we consider this day. It's a wonderful day, but a serious one. It's a day of confession of sin and a day of sacrifice. The Israelite watching on couldn't see the goat dying without saying, that's what I deserve. It would hear the moans of a dying creature and would rightly say, my heart is saddened by this death. Our sin is not a laughing matter. We've seen that the cross of Jesus is not a laughing matter. Our sin has been pardoned at an extreme price. So let us in awe and in thankfulness praise Jesus. We're going to sing in a minute, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you. It's a day of rest as well. And this is glorious. We rest now because there's nothing we can do but trust in Jesus. So stop with me now for a minute. Chris is going to come up. Um, and in your own heart, maybe do one of two things before Chris helps us sing in response. If you've trusted in Jesus today, just stop it in your own heart now. Thank him. Just thank him for the glorious truth of this. And maybe if you haven't trusted Jesus yet, there's a chance to ask God to help you to believe to say sorry to God for your sin and ask him to forgive it, he'll answer. So let's stop now. I'll give you 30 seconds or so and then Chris will begin to play and we'll sing before we share communion together.